Uh, good morning and welcome. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, we continue our series as we look at conflict. And we've looked at a number of different things when it comes to conflict, and some, just for a review, we'll look at this. We've got kind of the overarching idea was don't let the sun go down on your anger, which is saying you've got to handle conflict very quickly because anger especially is one of the gateway emotions that can lead to the devil getting a foothold. That was kind of the main message that we had there. Talked about conflict of policy, which is basically saying A or B is just fine. Just you choose A, they choose B, so then there's conflict as you try and figure that out. Value conflicts last week, and today we're going to talk about the most common of conflicts, perception conflicts. There's good news and bad news with perception conflicts. The good news is and most people here, everybody here, it deals with perception conflicts that they struggle with. The also good news is that it's probably the easiest one, I think, to try and get kind of over the hump of trying to, to trying to handle this and move through this. So our case study that we're going to be looking at are the, the, um, the disciples. We're going to be looking in Mark. But first, we've got to talk about perception conflicts. So perception, just the word perception, comes from the Latin percepio, which has this idea of seize or grasp. So the idea is you are going around and you have senses that are seizing these uh, things. And then you have to make evaluations from that. So you sense, like, here's what something looks like, and then you make a perception about it. Then you hear what someone says to you, you make a perception about it. So all of these things happen, you're getting all this information, and then you come to these conclusion that this is what reality is. Now the scary part is that for a lot of times, the, we get this uh, sample with the kids just a little while ago. Remember we played, they, the guy said brainstorm on a kid's game, if anyone remembers this, and it sounded like a totally different thing. Well, that's the same thing. Your mind and your brain will fill in the gaps to say, here's what reality is. And so we got a couple examples here. This was, if anyone from the UK, has anyone had one of these candy bars? Which one of these candy bars looks more appealing to you? Option A or B? Oh, I got my spotlight. I think I can, I think I can wreck the screen, apparently. So, that's, so I, option A, which is square, angular, or option B, which is round. Who says option A, angular, looks more attractive? How about B, the circular? Okay, this is the big, so Cadbury, when they did this in the UK, this is the original one, is on the top. And they, they sent this out, and they got this idea that we should make it rounder. Now, what's really interesting is that your mind will perceive food on a round plate. I'm guessing most of you eat on round plates, unless you're super cool and you have the square plates. But most of us, we, we, most of us that have, and kids at least, have the round plates that you can buy again at the store. We don't get like the set because we know we're going to break them. I've got like 15 plates and I've got like 700 forks, you know, so I, that I don't have to do dishes very often. So we got these, you got the round plates. Did you know your mind perceives things on a round plate to be sweeter? So when Cadbury came out and they made these rounded edges, and the only reason they did that is to make it more savory so it would melt better instead of have like kind of these angles to it, there was like total uproar. This was like their nation, national candy. When you have no other good food, you've got to hold on to something. So they, they're holding on to this, and they said, this tastes disgusting, it's awful. They do taste tests after taste tests to say they changed it. They had experts come in and say, this looks sickly. I don't maybe it does. It looks like an intestine, I guess, a little bit. <laughs> so so the, 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 the shakedown of it is they didn't really change it at all. It was just this perception of that. Now, more often, we get perceptions when it comes to visual things. Here is, if we had a brighter projector today, I don't know why it's a little blue today. So we've got these different colors in advertising. So anyone who's in advertising knows that there's colors that they talk about in advertising. And I heard this a couple years back. There's a, my experience of it is this. Someone told me that red and yellow are what people think of when they think of food. And this is like an advertising drive. And I'm like, oh, okay. Could it possibly be that the largest food chain in the whole entire world is yellow and red? Could that be it? 
Maybe. All right. So that was one. And the other is whenever you get a logo for a church, we've had various things. They give you a binder. Has anyone been in part of this for work or anything like this? So they give you a binder. They make the logo, and then they hand you the binder about the colors, and it has all these things that say, like, well, obviously we chose the orange because of the optimism and clarity and warmth. They just make all that stuff up, I think. Or they do scientific studies like we did at church. So brown is not on here, but brown normally means trustworthy. Our other color on our logo is blue, which is trust and strength, truth. Does anyone believe that we did an intense scientific study to pick the colors of our logo, or we just thought they looked pretty good together? So those are the two options. Actually, you could kind of take any color. None of them are like really bad, right? That there's no color here that you put it up in. That just means you follow the devil or anything like that. So you're pretty safe when you do those things. Probably the biggest controversy, and now I'm worried that it's not going to come through on the screen, was just a few years ago. Can you see it? Uh, everyone's like, oh, give me a break. We've talked about this before, I know. But we see this, the dress. So is anyone, this is the original photo. And so the story, if you don't know the story, there was a couple that was getting married in England on this tiny little island, and they were trying to figure out what dress she was going to wear, like to her in-laws. They started arguing on the picture of what color it actually was. So then they did a poll among the islander people that lived there, like this small area. And then someone came to play at the at this thing, and they were so obsessed, they almost forgot to go play for the wedding because they were looking at the color of this. Because in reality, do you know what color it is? So I'll just go to the next photo. How many of you see like a gold and white when you see it? Okay, three people. Well, everyone actually should see it because that's actually gold and white, just so we know that. The other side is kind of a vibrant blue. It, when it gets, it's usually about 50-50. And in fact, when they do some polls, they say two-thirds of the original photo saw it as gold and white. Now, does that freak anybody out a little bit? I've asked my dad this, who's a science, uh, he was taught physics and he's kind of a science dork, I should say geek, and he's a science geek, and I would say, Dad, how do I know that I see colors the same way as anyone else? And then he just went into this long explanation about cones on your eye and something or other and the light refraction and stuff like that. But does that freak you out a little bit that you could say, when I see something, is my blue the same blue as everybody else? That's perception. And so this gets a little more complicated when you start talking about things beyond like dresses, when you start talking about situations and communication. So if you study communication, they do studies on this all the time. And percentages, there was one that was recently done. It said 58% of communication is body language. So think about it. We got 58. I should, do, I should have done easier numbers. 58 and then 35% of it is tonal. So do you know what percentage they say is actual communication with the words that you speak? Seven, according to this study. So seven. So you're saying, like, is that, is that possible? I think the easiest way to understand that is if you ever get an email and you're like, what exactly does this mean? Like, I'm not sure what this means. And this happens to my family. I'm like, hey, can you come here once? Can you read this email? I'll send it to a friend and I'll say, like, what do you think this means? Instead of... Would this have been clarified probably if we were in person and talking and communicating with body language? Now, it gets even worse. What's the worst form of communication as far as misunderstanding? Text messages are like the absolute worst, right? You get a text message, you're like, okay, <laughs> wait, what? Huh? So the Lord provided emojis just so you know that someone doesn't hate you, right? So they send a message, and then you get an emoji smiley face. You're like, oh, we're all good here. This is good. This is nice. So that... This is the only way that you do this. So this is covering the whole gamut and how you communicate. 
we have a communication issue of perception when we get to the disciples, and it's in Mark chapter 9. This is going to be kind of our case study today. There's two parts to it. Then we're going to talk about what this kind of means and how we handle perception, and we're going to get all the way to the end of what God expects of us way at the end. So they had left that place. This is Jesus and his disciples. They passed through Galilee, and there's only one map that pastors know. There's the Sea of Galilee on the top, and then like the Jordan River, and then we have the Dead Sea in the bottom. So the Sea of Galilee, they passed through that area, that region. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, here's what he's teaching. The Son of Man, that's how he would refer to himself most often, is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. So this is the second time he's done this. There's another time he did it with Peter. Do you remember Peter's reaction when he did that? And he said that, you know, I must suffer and die. And in fact, Peter said, surely not, or that's never going to happen. And in that case, Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. So this is their perception. They, they're going along with Jesus. Jesus is the, the ruler of the world. He's the Messiah. And they have this perception of what that looks like. And now they're starting to see reality, and that's really hard for them to put together. So Jesus comes and says, I have to suffer and die. He has to say this repeatedly to them so that they get this through their idea that I'm not coming to destroy and obliterate the world. I'm here to save the world through my death. They can't quite do that. So naturally, they didn't understand what he meant. So instead of asking about it, instead of a text message, they're afraid to ask him about it. They're just like, I don't know. So they came to Capernaum. They're walking. That's a little bit farther along. This is where Peter was from. When he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? Does anyone know how this goes if you listen to the gospel? This is one of my favorite parts in all the Bible. But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Who would want to admit that, right? It's like when you're writing in your journal about how awesome you are and someone says, hey, what are you writing about? You're like, oh, nothing. (laughs) Self-reflection. Like like this is one of these embarrassing moments. You ever get caught taking a picture of yourself and someone's like, what are you doing? You're like, oh, I, I don't know, just hanging out here not doing anything. So the same thing is true. They're arguing about how great they are. And I thought, that is the craziest thing I've ever heard. Then I thought, it's actually not that crazy. As human beings, and I I think when you talk about perception when it comes to relationships and issues that lead to conflict, most of the issue comes down to how we view ourselves. So if we're going to say perception, it's not how you view a situation necessarily, it's how you view yourself. And for the disciples, they could not understand who Jesus was, so they misunderstood who they were when they argued about the greatest. And I think the same thing is true in our own life. If you cannot understand who Jesus is, you're going to have trouble understanding and understanding who you are. So let's just talk about this for a little bit, and I'm going to use a chair. Not as an illustration, just because I'm getting tired. So I think there's a couple ways that we can handle. So I should have picked a chair that does not bend (laughs) or lose weight. Those are my two options. So I think at the end of the day, no matter how tough and cool and how successful you are, we're very fragile human beings, emotionally, right? So most of us, physically we are too, right? Like animals can go and function. Like my dog is not complaining about the temperature this morning. And and birds don't complain about it. They just nestle up. But human beings, when you go outside and it's cold, you do something about it, right? You could say that we're smart. We do something about it. But most of you put on clothes this morning, right? When you went to check like the newspaper, most of you, right? <laughs> right? I hope I, somebody lives in the country. They're like, nope. So I live in the country. So most of you put clothes on. Why? Because the elements are harsh. Most of you, when you drove here, it was cool. At least it was cold when I drove here. It, not that cold, apparently. <laughs> so someone's warm. But most of us, it was cool out. So you're like, wow, 
uh, I'm going to turn the heat on in my car so it gets a little more comfortable, right? This makes sense because the elements outside are harsh. And emotionally, I think that's so very true. It's the exact illustration that the reality of the world is very, very harsh, so we have to do something about it. We're working at the uh, property. We got a good group of volunteers on Saturday. We're making the boards. How do we know what reality is? When I say I need, uh, or someone says I need a, a board that's 120 and a half inches, how do we know reality? You measure it, right? We got a tape measure. We don't just both eye it up and go, that looks like 120 and a half. What do you think? No, you don't do that. You, you need something so that you'd be fighting all day long. You'd be eyeing this up and you'd be like doing the foot thing and some guy's like, well, my hand is nine inches and then you'd be tr you're trying to figure all this out. But if you get a tape measure and you say, here's my tape measure, here's your tape measure, I don't care. We're going to measure it. We're going to check it. This is reality. We say this is good. Cut, cut. In fact, we had one board that didn't look right. They bring it back. I knew it was right because I cut it. No, that's not true. <laughs> Mr. Perfection when it comes to construction. That's why they let me do the rough sawn work. So we, we measure it up. It's the exact temperature. Right. See, that's how precise I am. It's the exact distance that we need. So we had reality that this is the distance. So emotionally, how do you do that so that you can kind of stay in a bubble and protect yourself from reality? Think about this. Uh, how do you protect yourself from reality? I think there's a couple ways. I think there's a couple ways that we do it. One way that we do it is we use a different scale. Your scale and my scale are two different things. If I want to, and you might know this, that it doesn't matter what culture, what age, what gender, more than half the, more than half the people in the world rate themselves as above average. Does that make sense? There's a group of pastors, and I've shared this stat before because I think it's super funny, is that in our group of churches, they did a stat, and they, they said, rate yourself in preaching one to five. So I usually just hand it to my friend at conference. I'm like, hey, can you do my ratings? And he rates it, and I rate his, and we hand it back and forth, and we hand it in. And so you're supposed to self-regulate. Now, does that make sense? It would, except more than half of the pastors rate themselves at a four out of five. That, that's distinctly above average. And you know what the average, uh, average congregation rates their pastor as? You guys don't get the survey on purpose. Uh, but the average... Congregation rates it at about a two and a half. There's somewhere this scale is not working, right? There's a perception that we are better than we're at. So what is happening? They're using a different scale. And I'm going to make it really easy and, uh, with parents. So a lot of you are kids. I know not all of you are married and not all of you have kids. What makes you feel like you're an above average parent? I'm guessing there's no one here who's willing to say I'm a below average parent, right? Unless they're being self-deprecating. Most of us would say we're above average. Most of us. So what makes you think that you're above average? Your scale. So if you think that to be a good parent means to go to all the kids' events, and you go to all the kids' events, that makes you a good parent, right? If you think academics are really important and you help them with their homework, that makes you a good parent. If you think that they should learn an instrument and you help them learn an instrument, that makes you a good parent. If you think they should be involved in sports and have a well-rounded life, that makes them a good parent. It can get farther down the road, right? If you think if you just give them a haircut, it's a good parent. Does anyone know Chris Rock? I don't often quote Chris Rock ever in a sermon, but he has this, this bit where he's talking about some guy that was talking and bragging about how he's got a job and he pays the bills. And you can imagine Chris Rock's expression. He's like, you're supposed to have a job. You're supposed to pay your bills. Like, if you can get the scale all the way down, you can still think you're a good parent if you just don't beat your kids. 
It's just, it just depends on your scale, right? I, I've got a different scale than you have a good scale. So how can everybody here think we're really good? We just have different scales. What happens if you have the same scale? What happens if something can be precisely measured and so reality is like right there at the door? How can you still feel good about yourself? You get a smaller sample size. That's option two. So some of you know this. I've told you this before. That I, one year I said, you know what? I'm going to be competitive at indoor rowing. That's a huge sport, as you can know. Every, all of you indoor row, right? Nobody does unless you have like orangutan arms like I do, and you're especially tall because then you feel good about yourself because you're automatically better than 90% of the population just, just by your physical build. So I thought, wow, I should really do this. So I'm going to do this mil, uh, row like 2 million meters in a year. So I was doing this every single day, 10,000 plus meters a day, and, and I'm getting reasonably decent at it, but not so good that I'm the best in the world. So what's option B? Maybe, since I'm not better than the Europeans, maybe I'm better than the U.S. because everybody rows in the U.S., right? This is super popular. Okay, they actually row on the west and east coast because there's water available. So what if I make the sample size a little bit smaller and I just go by my region? What if I squeeze it just a little bit more and you go by your state? And I'm pretty good, right? Maybe I'm one of the best. I could be the best indoor rower in the whole entire state. But how many people even indoor row? How many of you actually care? Nobody, but I care, and I would wake up in the morning and say, yep, if I narrow down, the, that's why they have parameters, and the stuff gets small enough. And the same thing happens at your work. Let's just say you're at work, and you say, am I really good at my job? You're probably not the best sales guy in the entire world, or saleswoman, that's my guess. But maybe you're the best in the company, but maybe not. Maybe you're just the best in the office. Or maybe you're like me, you're just the best indoor rower in your basement. Right? If you get it small enough, if you get the sample size small enough, you can sure feel good about yourself. There's another thing that we do. Sometimes we just don't even live in reality. Reality is right there, and we're just going to make up our own reality about life. You ever meet people? Then you talk to them about, this especially is true in sports, and their perception of their abilities on a sports field is very different than reality. You ever meet someone when they, when they talk about their day and, and how they did something or how something went down, and you're going, wait a second, I was there at the exact same time, and you're not very good. Does, has this ever happened to you? It's a lot easier, and this is where I'm getting at, it's a lot easier than face the harshness of reality if we just change it and we don't have to deal with it. They kept quiet because on the way they had argued who was the greatest. Reality. You want to know what's real? Are you willing to know what's real? Really? Do you want to know that there's no redeeming quality in any of us? Do you want to know that? Do you want to know when you look in the mirror, uh, the shame and the guilt? Do you want to know the darkest secrets you tell about yourself are actually true? The things you're embarrassed about are true? Do you know that the God in heaven, when he looks at you, he's appalled? Do you want to know that, that, that when you look down and you say, I'm above average than everyone else, it's just a lie that we've hidden about all the other sins because people don't know about them? Do you want to know? Do you want the world to know? Just think what it's like if the world just saw inside you and things you've thought about, 
things you've done, the things you would never tell a single human being, that's reality. That's what's true. Tim Keller is a very smart pastor. He's not a pastor anymore. Now he just speaks, but he has a phrase, and it says something like this isn't exact, and I've shared something similar. We are more despised and we're more wretched than we ever dreamed. And I would use the word ever admit. Because no one wants to admit that they're that low. No one wants to admit that you're that despised. No one wants to admit that we're that disgusting because how do you recover from that? Because our emotions are so tight, we want this bubble to feel a little bit good about ourselves. But if you pop the bubble and see where you really stand, then you see a different reality. You see a reality that God sees who you really are and says, I'm still going to come. God sees into your heart and your mind and your thoughts and he says, I still love you. When you say, God, I've got nothing, God says, I don't care. God, I'm broken, he says, I don't care. God says, I'm a sinner, I don't care. God says, I looked at pornography, he says, I don't care. God, I had an affair, he says, I don't care. God, I steal, and he says, I don't care. God, I, am, I, I hate my kids. God says, I don't care. I can cover that up because I've lived perfectly, because I've come to this planet, because I want to step into your place so you can know a different reality. Who you are is not this bubble. Who you are is when the bubble's gone and you see how low you've gone and then you can really see how God has picked you up and made you something different. What does this look like? Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servants of all. He took a little child whom he placed among them. This is the ultimate children's lesson. He actually used a child. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, whoever welcomes one of these... Little children in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. What, what does this all get down to? I think it gets down to this. We work really, really hard to protect our emotions, and if we just wipe that away and see where we are and where we came from, our interactions with people isn't just to play on our own ego and who we are. When you know that God has filled you up and God looks at you and he shines in you and he says, you are loved by me more than you ever dreamed possible. It's a little bit easier, I think, to serve someone. I think it's a little bit easier to push my own aside. I think it's a little bit easier to step into reality and see where I stand. I think it's a little bit easier to be the parent God has called me to be. When I'm not trying to base my value on being a good parent, when I say God says I have value, I'm going to just do the best I can. When you go out to be an employee and it doesn't matter how much sales you have, God says that's not what matters right now. What matters is you are redeemed by me and loved by me and you're going to be with me for eternity. I think it's a little bit easier to go out and just do your very best. To be your very best as a teacher and a grandma and a niece and aunt and uncle, all these things. But the only way you can do that is open up your world and face reality. We're decrepit sinners, but only then can you see the beauty of Christ and how far he's picked us up, and he's not going to let you fall. Amen.